0: Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Uh, This summer, I'm going to take a minute before every sermon and give you a little uh, reminder of who we are as a church and why we exist. Um, Today I want to talk about buildings. So you are obviously hot. It's like watching um, a whole line of traffic you know, in the middle of a rainstorm, all these like fans flapping back and forth. It looks like windshield wipers this morning. Um, why are we in a hot room with a color scheme that looks like no one actually thought about picking out? Um, you know, why are we in a room like this? We're in a room like this for a couple of reasons. We as a church think it's really, really important that we think very critically about how, about where we meet and how we spend our money on where we meet. Our church spends $26,000 to rent this facility for a year. Uh, I was talking to a friend who's on staff at a church in the suburbs that's not much larger that spends $36,000 a month on their mortgage to sit in a gym. And, you know, we, we really think that one of the great values for us as a community is to rent space. It reminds us of a couple things. It reminds us that we don't... We're not... The church isn't a place that you go. It's people who go. And that we're a community that's called to kind of pitch our tent, sojourn, feel kind of homeless, feel kind of displaced, and feel kind of uncomfortable on a regular basis. It reminds us that God has not put us here to create special houses for ourselves to feel comfortable in, but to be a people who say, you know, God... You've called us to bless this community and this city. And so we rent not always the best places. You know, this isn't my first choice of the place I would like to worship in on a Sunday morning. But it's a place where God has provided for us. And it's a place where we can also be a blessing to a community. And those those are really, really important values to us. To say, you know, we want to spend our money not on, you know, just creating stuff for our comfort. But to seek the comfort of people who don't know Christ to bless our neighborhood around here. To also say, you know, we want to put our money into things that we really think are going to last. And no building lasts. You know, I love to go to Europe and see the great cathedrals. And they're all great tourist destinations. But they're not great places of worship. And I am not anti-building. If God provided us a building tomorrow, I would say, okay, okay. You know, we as a session, as a group of elders have said, this is really one of the things we think is a founding principle. So thanks for putting up in the heat with the heat this morning. Thank you for waving your windshield wiper-like fans this morning. Because it's part, you're doing something that matters in doing so. Thanks. We're turning this morning to launch a new study in the book of Philippians. And um, if you've been tuned in with the Liberty uh, Channel for the last year, you'll recognize that we have been hit three major themes this year. Last summer, we talked about love all summer long. And we sweated through the book, through a number of passages in the New Testament talking about love. Last winter, this past winter, we talked about hope. And this summer, we're going to be talking about joy and looking at the book of Philippians. Philippians is the book in the New Testament about joy. Uh, Paul mentions it 14 times in, in the book of um, Philippians. And I, let's be honest for a second, joy is one of those Christianese terms that we sing lots of songs about, right? We, we come in here and we sing lots of great songs about joy, we, sing lots of, we say lots of things about rejoicing, but the truth is that most of us have a hard time connecting, this, that, that term has a hard time landing in our lives. In fact, I would say the most of the time if you use the word joy at all, it's the word Enjoy. Right? We, we talk about enjoying things, which literally means to put joy in something, in your career, in your relationships, in a good meal, in your new car. We enjoy, we savor things, you know, that give us pleasure. And yet, what Paul talks about here in, his, in the book of Philippians is something absolutely apart from this. See, Paul's circumstances were those where he is in prison. He is chained to a guard in a Roman jail... And he's chained to a Roman guard where if the guard has to go to the bathroom, Paul goes to the bathroom. If Paul has to go to the bathroom, the guard goes to the bathroom. A Roman prison is not a very enjoyable place. Right? Paul is defining joy in something, in a way, that we don't think about. We think of enjoying joy in circumstances, people, you know, situations, meals. Paul's in a place where there's nothing to enjoy there's nothing enjoyable about his life, and yet, this is the book of joy. This is a book that's, it's, it's a categorically different kind of joy. It's not joy in, it's joy in spite of. Joy despite. You know, last year's Atlantic Monthly magazine um, featured an article about a sociological study that started back in 1937. It was conducted by a team of researchers at Harvard and is one of the longest running sociological studies that's ever been done. It's been done for 73 years. And the Harvard team selected a group of 268 men and decided to do a lifelong study on them. And the study was called, kind of a bland title, the Harvard Study of Adult Development. But it was basically looking to answer one question, and one question only. What makes people happy? What makes people happy? And so this team of researchers have followed these men throughout their lives and looked at what makes people happy. And there was an interview in the Atlantic Monthly, monthly with the current lead researcher. His name is George Valiant. And, and they asked him, so 73 years of, of study here. What's your conclusion? know, what's, what's the answer? What makes people happy? And this is his profound... Response, what matters in life is your relationships with other people. That's it. I mean, I, ha- I was reading this, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, I don't know if that strikes you necessarily as good news or bad news. To me, it's kind of bad news. Because we stink at relationships, if we're really honest. We stink at relationships with other people. We have a hard time, you know, with lifelong friendships. We have a hard time with roommates. We have a hard time being married. I mean, all those things, if we're bluntly honest with ourselves, are incredibly difficult for us. So, what matters most is your relationships with other people. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Harvard. That's not a great answer for me. And yet, as you look at the first chapter of Philippians, it actually is kind of biblical. It's actually kind of biblical. You see in in Philippians 1, where Paul writes to this church, this church in Philippi, and he says some pretty profound things about them. He says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in my prayers, for you making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. It says in verse 7, It's right for me to feel this way about you. I hold you in my heart. He says in verse 8, God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. I mean, this guy is gushing. This guy is like, really, really loves this little church in Philippi. And here's the odd thing about those statements. Here's what's odd about those. First is that Paul is not near them. You know, have you ever been in a long-distance relationship? Man, long-distance relationships are tough. Why are they tough? Proximity matters. Proximity, there's something about proximity. And yet Paul is like... He's he's in Rome, and they're in Greece. Now, I don't know if you do your geography. Those aren't, like, right next door. He is not. There's no proximity there. Second is, there's very little affinity between these people. When Paul went to plant a church in this city, he couldn't find a synagogue because there were no Jewish people. There weren't ten Jewish men in the city. This church was made up entirely of Gentiles. Paul is a Jew. He is not only a Jew, he's like... One of the hardcore Pharisee Jews. There's very little in common. There's not like, hey, you remember when we were in Cub Scouts together? There's none of that going on in this passage. And the the third thing that's really interesting is that he has spent very little time around these people. He's only been to Philippi twice. Twice he's been to Philippi. Once was for less than a week. Once was for a little longer. But, you know, he's only been there two times. So, the things that we think of that define a deep friendship... Affinity, proximity, time together, none of those things characterize this relationship. And yet, this, these people, Paul says to them, like, look, you are what's sustaining me. Part of what's keeping me going is you. I'm so thankful for you. I love you so much. You're dear to my heart. You hear all those, like, words? How he's gushing about these people? You know, there's a whole lot of loving going on in this passage, but that's not a lot of our experience. Probably a lot of you have heard of or read the book called Bowling Alone. It came out a couple years ago by Robert Putman. And he put to, this book is a sociological study of the last 20 years in the United States and tells you what everybody knows if you already go to a coffee shop, which is that Americans are profoundly lonely. Americans are profoundly lonely in a crowd. This is why we go to coffee shops with our laptops and we drink overpriced burnt coffee while sitting next to other people. And we're doing community because we're all on Facebook at the same time and we're all writing on other people's walls and we all have our earbuds in. We're sitting next to people who look like us and who would probably be our friends, but we don't talk to them because we're doing community while ignoring each other. Right? I mean, this is... You, know, you don't have to be a Harvard researcher to get this stuff, right? Bowling alone. This is where we are as a, as a culture. And many of you are profoundly lonely. Many of you. I've talked to you. I know that you struggle with isolation. There's a sense in which, yeah, you've got friends, but do people really know you? You know, God's Word, God's Word this morning has great encouragement for us who are happiness hunters, who are joy seekers, who are saying, you know what, there's something about my life that doesn't ring true of Philippians 1. I hold you in my heart. I'm so thankful for you. Do we have these relationships? Let's look at God's Word. It has great words of encouragement for us this morning. So I want to take you first to this one realization. If you want to discover joy, if you want to discover happiness, In your life, I want you, you're going to have to discover God's happiness in His people. God's delight in His people. Now, the one thing that's fascinating about God is if you study the Bible, you'll see over and over again that God doesn't enjoy people. God doesn't enjoy people. He's not a consumer of relationships. He doesn't find His joy in people. He puts His joy in people. God is one who finds us in a condition of alienation from him, and yet is the one who puts joy in people. He puts his joy in his people. So if you, at the start of the book of Philippians, come on, look at the passage with me. You know, you see the from to card, like on the Christmas card, right? It says, Paul and Timothy, this is the from part, from Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, to, to who? All the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, with the elders and deacons. This is the from to. This is the part you kind of move past quickly. But look what he's saying in this passage. Look what he's saying just right here. He's saying, I am writing to you, saints. And this is where I have to hit the pause button on the sermon, right? Pause. Because we don't get the word saints. You know, if you walk around Philly and you ask almost every Philadelphian, particularly one with a good Catholic grandma, What's a saint? What do they say to you? What is, what is grandma going to say? Catholic grandma is going to say, "A holy person, right?" Come on, you know we have we have uh, you know Catherine Drexel, who was a, a nun from Philadelphia. We have these are especially good people. They're especially moral people. This is what saints are. But when the Bible speaks of saint, it uses the same term in exactly the opposite way. It's like my kids have been starting to talk about things being sick, nasty. Now, when, you know, I didn't know what sick, nasty was. Sick, nasty is actually a good term. You know, you like things to be sick, nasty. Like, as in, that's a sick, nasty car. I wish I had one. You know, and I'm like, (laughs) it took me a while to figure out what Clay was saying. He's six years old. Everything is sick, nasty right now. You know, but in the same way, Paul is, you know, writing to these saints, and it's like sick, nasty. Right? He's saying, we think of saint, and we think... Catherine Drexel, really, really good person. Thanks, Catholic Grandma, for that definition. Really moral person. Really upright person. But this is a sick, nasty definition. Okay? He's saying, no, it is not a moral quality. It's not a moral quality. It's a relationship term. So, this is what I mean. Literally, the term... To be holy, to be, to be a saint, is to be set apart by God. To be set apart. For God to say, I am putting you aside in your life. This person, I am setting you apart for myself. It points to something that you don't do. It points to something that God does to you. That you are a recipient of. This is why, in this passage, look, if you don't believe me, if you, if you want to be on the side with your Catholic grandma, look at verse 6. What does it say? I am sure of this, that God, he who began a good work in you, he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It points us, look, your life in God, your being a saint today, has nothing to do with with what you do, and has everything to do with what God does for you and in you and to you. It's all about what God does. It's based on the action that he does. As one writer says, you are holy through your union with Jesus Christ. You're holy through your union. You are holy only, holy, sorry, holy only, that's hard to say, holy only because you have been loved by God and set apart by God. And as much as you have been set apart and loved by God, which means you are very much loved and you are very much holy. Have you ever been out in the woods, out away from the, the, the skyline, out away from lights, on a full, full moon night? You know, if you're walking out in the woods on a full moon night, no, no streetlights around, it's almost like being outside during the daytime. I mean, you can walk outside without a flashlight. You can see exactly where things are. I mean, it's unbelievable. And though all of us have had, at one point, first grade science, and we know that the moon is a rock that's kind of floating around in space, you might swear to me, and I would swear to you, the brilliance of the moon on a full moon night, you're like, surely the light's coming out of that thing. I mean, it is overpowering how much light can come from the moon. You know, but we all know, because all of us have had first grade science at one point or another, that the moon itself gives off no light. It It reflects all the light that comes from the moon, no matter what you think that night, is borrowed. It's derived. It's secondhand light. In the same way, the holiness, the reason that God is able to call you a saint is not because of something that emanates out of your life. It's some, It's secondhand holiness. It's derived holiness. It's borrowed holiness. See, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when he, when His love shines into your life, when He says, You are my beloved child. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I died on the cross for you. He's a substitute for us. When His love shines upon us, you would swear, looking... Man, that's got to be coming from us. No, it's the brilliance that would come out of your life ever is derived. It's secondhand holiness. And that's why God is able to say, Look, you're a piece of rock, but I'm calling you a saint. You're a piece of rock, but I am calling you a saint. You are my beloved. You are holy because of Jesus. Because of this this secondhand holiness. This was like... An explosion. This was the atomic bomb of the Reformation. There was this monk who was striving for Catherine Drexel style holiness, being a morally upright good person. And he discovers in reading the Bible that the only righteousness, the only holiness that comes in a person's life is always secondhand. And you know what the guy does? He gives up being a monk, he starts brewing beer, he gets married. This is a guy's Martin Luther, fifteen seventeen. He he like hammers this piece of paper on the doors of the church, saying, "Unbelievable, secondhand holiness. I'm a saint." And he writes this phrase: "We are both sinners and saints at the same time. Unbelievable. I don't know how God does it. You're a rock, and yet you're a saint. You know this is what God does, and this is one of the reasons people write off the church all the time because they don't get this part." People write off the church all the time. They're like, I hate Christians. They don't walk their talk, right? They are all talk about loving people and being good and all this kind of stuff. But Christians are the biggest hypocrites I know. Christians don't live like they say they should. And I'm like, that's exactly right. Because we're both sinners and saints. We're both at the same time. You're a rock floating around space. And yet there's a brilliance in your life because God has said, you are mine. You are set apart for me. You are set apart by my love. You're a saint. See, what does this tell us about church? It tells us this. Church is a place for the morally impure. It is. Church is a place for the morally impure. It's a place for people who aren't. St. Catherine Drexel. It's a place for people who are St. you. St. derived holiness. St. second hand holiness. That's you. That's who this church is for. That's who the church is for. God set us apart. You know, Jesus said, I didn't come for the well. I came for the sick. This is a place for the sick. This is a place for people who are saying, man, I I feel like I'm a hypocrite all the time. I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. This is, you know, I have this moral uncleanness in my life, and yet God says, no, you are perfect because of what my son has done. You're a saint. Second, not everybody who's in church is a saint not everybody who comes into church is a saint you know as Paul says in verse 1 you have to be in Christ you have to be in Christ I heard this week about a woman in Philly who um, had told her parents that she was going to law school that she'd gotten into law school so she took the LSAT and then she told her parents I won't name the school but she told her parents I got into the school she rents an apartment near the school She buys books. She posts the schedule for the classes. She hangs out at coffee shops and looks like she's studying. They call her up and she's staying up late at night because she's, you know, she's so busy and stressed out because she's working ahead. Well, this happens for a couple of years. And she's swindling her parents out of money because she really isn't in law school. And her dad happens to be on a train ride one day. And talks to somebody else who's supposedly in her class. And he's like, don't you know her? You know, have you ever studied with her? And she's like, I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. I've never heard of that person before. And dad kind of scratches his head and later on calls the school. And they're like, yeah, we have no record of your daughter enrolled in any of our classes. Look, it is possible to be in the church, to have the schedule. You know, you got, you got your schedule for the summer church activities you know you got the book it's possible to have all those things to show up and be in the right place in the right time and yet to be disconnected from Christ to say you know I've got all the trappings in my life that look like this is true but I am not in Christ being in Christ just like my metaphor of the sun and the moon you know this is where my metaphor kind of breaks down because the moon rotates around the earth you know look your life has to be in orbit around Christ To be a Christian means to say, God, I'm going to let you be the center of of my life. I'm going to put myself in your hands. I'm going to put myself entirely in your hands. I am a sinner. I know that. And I need your transforming power in my life. I am helpless. I'm aware of my moral failures. And I need you to come in. I can't fix me. I can dress it up. I can play. I can play the part. But unless God is at the center of your life, unless you have a vibrant living connection to Him, then you need to ask yourself, am I just playing law school? Look, here's what I said before. If you want to discover God's joy, if you want to find joy in your life, you need to drink from this keg. You need to find God's joy that He puts in His people. God's joy is He rejoices to say, I delight in you. I'm calling you my beloved. I'm calling you my holy one. I'm setting you apart by grace, for grace, for me. You need to drink deeply of this. But second, if you want to discover joy, then find joy in God's people. Find joy in God's people. Now, Look, I realize that this is kind of a rough transition in the sermon. It's like I shoved the gear in without a clutch and you could all be like bouncing around and finding joy in God's people is something that we have a hard time thinking about. And so I'm going to give you this story. So this weekend is our 16th anniversary weekend. And like a lot of couples, the way we celebrate that is by my wife going on the women's retreat. Right? So we can be apart for the weekend. Um, So... A couple of years ago, we decided to go away for our anniversary weekend. We got the kids farmed out to the various other sundry people who were nice enough um, to care for our kids for a weekend. And we go to Cape May. We we're very excited. Never been to Cape May before. And so, you know, I, I, a friend of ours let us borrow their house in Cape May. We get to print out the directions. We're driving. I'm geared up for a romance. I know this is kind of exciting for you guys to think about. So um, we're driving to Cape May, and we, and I have pictures in my head. You know, the only place I'd been before was Ocean City and Wildwood. So this is supposed to be quaint. It's supposed to be a beautiful little town, right? So we pull into a place, pull up in front of the house, and the neighborhood we pull into looks like an episode from the TV show Cops. Okay? So we pull up in front of this house, and there's, like, cars on the street, up on blocks. No men in the neighborhood had shirts on. Not one, you know? And so we, we get out, and I'm like oh, okay, this isn't exactly what I pictured. You know, but we're Bradfords. This is what Bradfords do. We make lemonade out of lemons. That's what we do. And so, you know, we, we, I'm like, let's go swimming. Let's go to the beach. The beach is like half a block away. So we're going to go to the beach. It's going to be great. So we walk down the beach, and I'm surprised. It's a sunny day in early June, and the beach is completely empty. Except for the horseshoe crabs that are dying in the sand and the flies. And I'm like, where, where is everybody? This is the Jersey Shore. You know, and so we put down our towels, and I'm undaunted by either the smell or the horseshoe crabs. And I'm like, I'm going to go swimming. So I wade out into the water, and my feet sink in this brown muck, like up to my knees. And I come out, and it smells bad, and I go back to the house and hose off, and it's kind of staining my legs brown at this point. You know, it's just this, I'm like, what is the deal? Where is Quaint? Where is Cape Bay? And I find out, no, there's a difference between Cape May, the little town, and Cape May, like, the county area. And we were on the bay. We're not at the shore. We're on Cape May on the bay. And so I'm like, uh, it's brutal. You know, we drive around, we finally found quaint. And, you know, look, I know for some of you, when I talk about finding joy in God's people, you're thinking cops. You're not thinking quaint. You're thinking... The bay, not the shore. You're thinking Cape May, the county, not Cape May, the little township. It's hard for us, many of us. You know, you've had experiences of Christian community. You're like, um, no thanks. I think, I'll, I think I'll back out on this one. You know, this is not what I am into. But not Paul. But not Paul. You see what he writes in verses 3 through 5? I thank God at every remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel... I mean, he's just filled with emotion for these people. He's not thinking cops. He's not thinking the bay. There's something that Paul grabs onto about these people, about living in relationship with other Christians, that somehow is joy-giving and life-sustaining to him. It's joy-giving and life-sustaining. What is it? The word partnership in this passage is the Greek word for koinonia, which um, maybe maybe you've heard thrown around in Christian circles, meaning fellowship. It literally means things held in common. The things that we hold in common. And Paul says here later on this passage, this partnership that we have in the gospel. The thing held in common is the the fact that we are sinners and saints. That we are both at the same time. The gospel is what holds them together. C.S. Lewis has a book called The Four Loves and he talks about different kinds of love. And he says, you know, there's the kind of love between a a couple where they're like staring into each other's eyes and there's all this like deep sighing, right? And then there's another kind of love which is friendship love where two people are standing and looking together at the same thing and saying, you two, Yeah, look at that. Things held in common. The things that are held in common. And for Paul, he says, this is the gospel. That you're both a saint and a sinner at the same time. Now, you may be sort of like, thanks a lot, Bradford. That's kind of a boring definition. For friendship, for Christian friendship, things held in common? I mean, you could say that about everything. Things held in common. I mean... You can have relationships with all kinds of fellow Christians that are not life-sustaining, joy-giving, life-giving relationships. So what's, what is it that's special about this? You know, for example, I know many of you who are lonely in church. Who are lonely in church. You're surrounded by people all the time. You may be even sort of in on the in group of a group of people. And everybody kind of knows you. You're invited to the social functions. And yet you're profoundly lonely. Because there's no one who looks at your life and says, I know you. I know you. Like an avatar, I see you. You know, I, I really know you. I, I, I know who you are. I can ask you the heart-penetrating questions. You know, we get raw like that. It's real. I know what's going on. And some of you are profoundly lonely in a highly relationship church like Liberty. You're like, I'm... I kind of feel like I'm alone in the crowd. It is very possible, you know, it's very possible to be surrounded by other people, surrounded by other Christians, and yet to be profoundly lonely, to be feeling like you're out of it. So, look, if you want to discover joy, it's not just finding joy in God's people. This is the qualifier to this. It is creating joy in God's people, creating joy in God's people. See, the quality of friendships that Paul demonstrates in this book with the Philippians, the quality of those relationships is not just based on, hey, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, that's great. We're in the same home meeting, that's great. There's something more that's going on here. It's only when the gospel is not just assumed in a relationship, but when it's unleashed, when it's exercised, when it's let to run free. i got a crazy neighbor next door. My crazy neighbor has two pit bull puppies, and these puppies are contained in a very small space. Um, you know, they're kind of friendly, but kind of also scary to me at the same time. You know, because they're in this very small place. That they jump at the fence every time I'm there. They wag their tails, but yet I'm wondering, if they got free, would they lick me or chew my hand off? You know, there's something a little frightening about this. And for some of us... Thinking about saying, hey, I want to unleash the power of the gospel in my relationships. Man, it sounds really scary. You don't know whether this is going to be comforting or really, really dangerous to you. You don't know which it is. But here's what I mean. Here's here's what I mean by saying we're going to unleash the gospel in our relationships. It's when two people say, two people say to one another, you're a sinner. But I know the truth about you. I know that's not the whole story. I know that God is doing something much bigger in your life. That he has called you a saint. And I want to help you learn to live out of that new person. That new identity. Saying, look, this is true. Yeah, you're right here today. But I'm not satisfied with that. Because I see where God's taking you. I see what he's already called you. And the destiny to which he's going to make the rock match up with the saint. He's going to make those things one. And I want to be a part of making that happen. I want to be a part of making that happen. Look, Jesus did this all the time with people. One of my favorite characters in the New Testament is Simon Peter. And here's Simon Peter. He's a fisherman. Jesus kind of steps into his life, steps into his boat, and says, let's go fishing. And you know the story. A lot of you know that like, Simon captures this huge catch of fish, and he falls down at Jesus' feet and says, get out of here. Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, no, you're going to be a fisher of men. I love that story because it's almost like this. I, I, I picture it almost like this in my mind. Jesus saying, look, this is your junk, Peter. I know exactly who you are. Let's go fishing. Let's go fishing. You know, this is, this is what it means to unleash the power of the gospel in your relationships. Here's your junk. Let's go fishing. You know, this is how Paul prays for them. If you look at the end of the prayer, Paul prays this amazing prayer that they would know who they are. He's saying, look, God is doing amazing things in your life. I want you to know and live out of who you are. So in some ways, I'm, I, I want to sing like the, the Baha Men, is it the Baha Men song, Who Let the Dogs Out? You know, really bad song from a couple years, 4th of July. Okay. But you know, I, I want you, I want us as a church... To begin to take, let the dogs out. Unleash the gospel in your relationships. It may feel comforting. It may lick your hand. It may feel really scary. Here's what this looks like. Let me paint you a little picture of what this looks like. One is you get honest. Now, I've got to be careful about this because in our culture, getting real and authentic, you know, I just want to be so real, I just want to be honest. That's celebrated as an end in itself. It is never celebrated as that in the Bible. The Bible isn't just like, hey, would you guys just be so honest? Throw up on each other? Here's my junk. No, the Bible is always saying honesty is on its way. It's honesty with a purpose. Honesty for edification. Honesty for like really getting in with somebody's life. And saying, I'm a mess and I need you to help me. To live out of who God says I really am. I really need you. I don't need just... I don't, who needs authenticity? I mean, aren't you overwhelmed with your own problems? Do you really want to see mine too? There's a difference between saying, hey, I'm authentic, and then I'm authentic with a purpose. Because I really want you to speak into my life, and I want to speak into your life. I want to say, yes, you're a sinner, but you're also a saint. Look where you're going. The second is boldness. Honesty and boldness. And this is where a lot of us are wimps. I mean, I'm I'm sorry, Liberty, you're a bunch of wimps. Because we don't talk, we don't speak up. Do we ever say, look, that's not who you are. You're not acting like yourself today. You're a saint and I know it. Do we ever speak in with purpose and say, why are you doing this again? Why are you living... You know, as if you have no future or hope or there's a direction or a purpose. Boldness. You see this boldness in, in verse 6. You know, if we just started saying this to each other Hey, you know what? God is not done with you. He who began a good work, he's going to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You start saying that to your friends? When they start telling you kind of what a mess they are, hey, God's not done. Let me help you. Let's see where God's going to take you. Honesty, boldness, and we see in this passage, prayer. He prays for them. If you would just start praying this prayer for your friends, if you just start praying this prayer from verses 9 through 11, I, I, I challenge you to see what God will do over the course of the summer if you begin to pray this for people. Look, Liberty is a good church. I love this church. I really do. And I've seen, you know, man, this is, this is a good church. We were on our elders' retreat two weekends ago, and one of the elders said here, you know what's weird about liberty? is This is the first Christian community in a long time that I actually would want to be with these people if I didn't have to. Right? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like a lot of Christian communities, people are like, you know, I, don't, I, I have to be with them because I know that's the right thing to do, but I'm not sure I really want to be with them. And this elder was like, you know, I really like these people. I actually would like, like to do life with these people. But you know, Before we pat ourselves too hard on the back for that, let me tell you this. You know what the difference is between a great church and a good church? The difference is not pastors, programs, preaching. It's not buildings, budgets, bulletins, or bands. It's relationships. It's real relationships. You know, churches can have all the pastors, programs, preaching, bulletins, bands, budgets... Honestly, that's what draws people to a church. People are like, oh, this is such a cool place. Oh, look, they have, a, they have special overburnt coffee here too. But that's not what keeps people in a church. What keeps people in a church, what keeps people in church and walking with God is real relationships with one another. Real relationships. Where they say, you know what, you're a sinner and you're a saint. You're a sinner and you're a saint. I know you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be with you. This church is not what I make it. This church is not what the elders make it. This church is what you make it, and you make it, and you make it, and you make it. It is. Last thing for this morning. Would you raise your hands with me? Raise your hands as high as you can raise them. Okay? A little deodorant check for this morning. Right? All right. Look. Now... Raise them, if you can, a couple inches higher. Come on, you can do it. you see that? I'm borrowing this illustration of Eric Heron Cole, but look at this. You were able, yeah, all of you said, you can put your hands down. All of you said, yeah, I can raise my hands high. I, can raise my, I said, raise your hands as high as you can. And then you are able to stretch a couple inches higher. This is my call to us as a community. Look, we've reached up. We're, you know, some people would say, man, liberty is a relationship church. But I'm asking you, will you stretch higher? Can you stretch higher as a community? Because I don't think this is just where God wants us to be. I think there's something within grasp that's going to take some extra push. And it's living relationships of purpose. Living relationships, creating joy in other people. I think that's one of the things God's called us to, don't you? Wouldn't you like to be of a church like that? Where people are like, man, I'm not just here, I'm here. As far as pursuing one another in relationships. I have an exercise for you before we go. If you would take your bulletin, we left a whole bunch of space on the back there for you. And I want to ask you, before we close this morning, to take a moment and to write down three names. Write down three names on the back of your bulletin. First, I want you to write down the name of somebody who you know, who's probably as close as you have to being this kind of friend who speaks into your life, who really listens to you. Would you write down that person's name? Second, you're going to write down the name of someone who, you're like, this person should be this. You know, with a little bit of push, with a little bit of reach in my relationships, something could really change. Something could really go there in my relationships and the third name I want you to write is somebody who's dropped off somebody who you know who used to be here used to be part of your life or used to be a Christian who's dropped off would you take a moment and write down those three names a relationship that is this kind of relationship relationship with purpose with gospel partnership one that could be and one of somebody who's just dropped away How many of you got one name? Anybody got one name? Two names? Anybody got two names? Three names? No names? Come on. There's not many hands. In a minute, I'm going to pray for these people. These words from Philippians 1. Before I do, I want to give you uh, a couple bullets for your gun. So up here on the, the front, I have a, a paper here that says Christian Identity Statements. And they say, who am I? And they say things just like we read this morning about being a saint and a sinner at the same time. In fact, these are, it's just a list of verses about who you are. And I want to ask you if you'll pick up one of these and use it this week. And you've got names on a piece of paper, and I'm giving you some ammo to say, would you go out of this place today and seek God's joy in someone's life? Seek God's joy. Create God's joy in someone's life by speaking, by listening, and by reminding people of who they are in Christ, what God's done for them. I'm going to put these up here after the service, but I'm going to warn you. I'm going to be asking you in two weeks' time if you actually used one of these. So don't pick one of these up. You don't pick up ammo unless you're prepared to use it. I'm going to ask you if you will take one of these, if you'll use it this week in the life of someone else. Let me lead us in prayer for those people whose names you've written down. Lord God, we pray that their love might abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. We pray this in his name. Amen.